0: You can turn back to uh, Isaiah 40. I had Mark do most of the heavy lifting in that chapter. Uh, I'm going to focus on uh, 27 through 31, but I wanted to have the context, uh, because I will refer back to that context a few times. So I thought that would be a good thing. Um, If I can get there. Um, This is one of those mornings where I wish we had a cup holder. Like right here, so it wouldn't bother everybody. you know, like, Not spill on my notes and all this kind of stuff. Um, but uh, let's go for it. <clears throat> Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, if we were paying attention earlier when Mark was reading, we heard that all men are like grass, and the grass withers. And the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. So Father, help us to understand this word that you have spoken to us, though we are like grass, and though we wither, that we would know the hope that is found there, so that we, like Paul, though afflicted, would be able uh, to endure to press forward in the midst of suffering. Father, I pray selfishly for myself this morning that you would grant me strength because I am faint, Uh, not emotionally but physically. And so uh, strengthen me that your name would be exalted and that your people would be edified uh, this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Advent, technically, is about coming, but it's also about waiting, because you're waiting for someone to come. That is the whole point of this. They were waiting, Israel was waiting for Jesus, well, not knowing it was Jesus, but they're waiting for a Messiah to come, just as we now wait for Jesus to come back again for his second Advent. And so every Advent, Uh, necessitates a waiting and so I ask you what are you waiting for if I were to ask Eli he might go the force awakens (laughs) he is very excited about the release of the latest installment in star wars and I must confess that his father is excited too But some of us are waiting for something far more significant than a movie. Some of us are suffering, and we're waiting for that affliction to be lifted. Some of us have a loved one who is suffering, and we're waiting for that affliction to be lifted for them. And so some of us are waiting for some very serious, difficult things. And we're wondering why we're still waiting. And so we find ourselves, in many ways, in the same shoes as the Israelites were when Isaiah wrote this passage. Our big idea is that Messiah strengthens those who wait despite their weariness. Let's start with the affliction, the hard news that necessitates the good news. Afflicted, we complain that God doesn't care. That's what's going on in this passage. The context uh, that Mark read most of, it was the servant songs have begun here in Isaiah, and so it's pointing towards a Messiah the one who would come, and we see that the first few verses are appropriated for the ministry of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus. He's preparing the way and calling Israel to prepare and make straight the way of the Lord. That was John the baptizer's ministry. And so what we have going on here is also the cry in the first few verses to comfort his people that the servant was intended to comfort the people of God precisely because they were under affliction. And it's easy for us to kind of misunderstand this word comfort. Sometimes we think it just means to put our arm around somebody and let them know that you feel with them, that you can cry alongside them, to hand them the tissues so that they don't make too much of a mess, as they're crying. That's what we sometimes think comforting is. But what it really is, I think, and really kind of drawn out in a sense in Second Corinthians chapter one is this idea of strengthening another person through consolation. And so there's something more going on than just sitting with someone in their pain. Gospel promises are being spoken so that people have strength and have hope. So why is it that God wanted the servant, Jesus, to comfort his people? Why would they need comfort? We see here in the very beginning in 27, why do you say, why do you speak? The idea in the the verb tenses there is that This is something that is prolonged, something that is going on. They keep on saying, they keep on speaking, because something endures. Their affliction endures. And so this is not spoken to people who've had a bad day. This is not spoken even to people who've had a lousy week. But this is spoken to people who have had bad months, years, and maybe more. And so, if you've been suffering for a long time, in a sense, this is written to you. This is written to us, okay? But unfortunately, their suffering, this prolonged suffering, has produced complaint And now, as we look at the the whole of the Old Testament, we see that the people of Israel had a long history of complaining. Okay? This was not a random sort of complaint that is right here, but there's a long list of complainers, so to speak. For instance, Job. We have a, a whole book of Job arguing first with his counselors who weren't consoling him, okay? They weren't comforting him as they ought. But nonetheless, he's arguing with them about his suffering because they're saying, You're suffering because you're sinning. And he's going, No, I'm not. I, I don't know of any sin. But Lord, he starts to say, Why am I suffering? And then he gets engaged in a conversation with God in which God does the vast majority of the speaking, and Job the listening, okay? Which sort of mirrors exactly what we have here in Isaiah 40 in many ways, okay? We have the exodus and the wilderness generation, those, those people that Moses brought out out of slavery. You'd think they'd be excited about this, and what you keep hearing is, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here? Because every time something went bad, they would start to complain. We see it as well in the exile, which is what this is, Isaiah is preparing these people for, is the exile. How long are we going to be in Babylon, O Lord? How long? And then the people that were waiting when Jesus came, how long will we be occupied by Rome? How long will we be under their boot? How long, O Lord, how long? So there's a long history of affliction amongst the people of God, but there was also a long history of complaint amongst the people of God. And what was their specific complaint in this instance? First off, they say, my way is hidden from God. Last week, we talked about how they didn't want to be seen by God, how they wished that they were, so to speak, as I mentioned, Superman, and how we can't see through lead, and how they wished they were in this lead room so that God couldn't see, so to speak. Now, these are people who are completely different, because it's not their sin that is the problem, it is their affliction that is the problem, and they think God doesn't see their affliction. They think he doesn't care about their affliction. And so that is their complaint. Why doesn't he see? Meaning, why don't you do something? My way is hidden from you. They wanted to see God change their difficult course of life. That idea of my way. Now their way was the way of exile. But we cannot be in that way too. A similar way as we deal with cancer. Cancer. Or poverty, people struggling with poverty often feel that sense of, why doesn't God see my circumstances and change my circumstances? Last December, I was reminded of this the other day, thanks to Facebook. But last December, one of my friends died. Seven years, almost to the day, that he had been diagnosed with colon cancer. And so for seven years, he went through uh, surgeries and chemotherapy and broken bones and everything else for seven years, probably wondering, how long, oh Lord, how long? It ended last December. Last December, another friend of mine, not as close of a friend, who uh, was the first person i have met when I visited uh, RTS Orlando um, back in 91. And he had a very difficult life because he had some very difficult things that happened to him in his childhood. He was abused. He, he never was really able to kind of settle with that. And so he always seemed to have this, this rage under the surface. And therefore, his marriage was difficult, and his life was difficult. And last year, he gave up. And he took his own life. Because he got tired of saying, how long, oh Lord? How long? The darkness got to be too big, and the light got too small. That's where they are. The darkness seems so great, and the light seems so dim for them. I'm not too excited about how the ESV translates the next part of it. The NASB I think is much clearer when you look at the Hebrew. The justice due me escapes the notice of my God. It brings out that idea that they're seeing this in terms of justice, fairness. This what I am experiencing from their perspective, they're saying, it's not right. I don't deserve to be in this. I deserve something better than this. And and God's not giving me what I deserve, is what they're crying out. They're implying in the midst of this, I mean, you know, when someone says this, they're not rational. Suffering people are very rarely rational, okay? So as we think about this, don't think that I'm judging them, or uh, if you're feeling that, that I'm judging you, okay? Okay? But they're implying here that God is unjust, that God is uncaring. It's as if God has forgotten his covenant. When I was at Boston University, one of the professors there, whom I never had for a class, uh, I was in the wrong discipline, was Eli Wiesel. Some of you may have heard his name. He was frequently, uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, a potential winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. So he was a relatively famous individual. Um, Well, Eli uh, was born in Transylvania. Uh, How do you get from Transylvania to Boston University? Well, you go through Auschwitz. As a young boy, he was sent to Auschwitz and uh, Bachwald. And he survived. And one of the things that he witnessed while he was there were three rabbis. And these three rabbis, feeling much like the people making this complaint, staged a trial, putting God on trial. And this experience so marked Eli Vessel that uh, when he grew up, he wrote a play called The Trial of God. But instead of placing it, uh, for some reason, in the concentration camp, he decided to place it... Uh, in 17th century Russia after a pogrom. And the, these traveling um, actors were supposed to do a play in this town that got wiped out by a pogrom. And so they, they settle in, with, so to speak, with the... Um, a tavern owner and his family on the outskirts of town who somehow missed the, the, the program, and they decide to have a play where God is placed on trial for the atrocities that he committed or allowed to be committed against his people. Okay? That sense of, God has done us wrong. Part of their problem was that they had actually forgotten the covenant there's sort of a gentle reminder of this by calling them Jacob and Israel. Jacob, the one through whom the promise was to be uh, fulfilled, and then his new name after he wrestled with God and survived. I wouldn't say he won. (laughs) He survived by God's mercy, and he became Israel, one who strives. And he was given the promise Their affliction in this original context was precisely a covenant curse. But they had, along with those promises of the curse, the covenant promises of restoration that they had lost sight of. And so they'd forgotten the sin that got them there. And now they were going to forget the grace that would bring them out of there. And so we see a reflection of this in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 119. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. They should have recognized that in their particular case, this is not always the case, like it wasn't the case with Job, and it's not always the case with us, but in this particular case, they were afflicted because of the faithfulness of God to his covenant covenant promises. And they had broken the covenant. But let's remember that Psalm 119 continues about how they will be comforted by his steadfast love, his hesed, his faithfulness. He was going to bring restoration. And that's why this prophecy of Isaiah exists to remind them that the restoration is coming. So affliction is not a sign of God's faithlessness, not a sign of his injustice, not a sign of his carelessness. What is complaining? Complaining forgets who God is. And that's really where this prophecy of Isaiah goes. It goes to who God is. It doesn't just say, oh, you miserable little people, shut up. It doesn't say that. It's trying to comfort them. And so it reminds them, not in a judgmental way, but in a way, this is who you're dealing with. This is the God who's going to come for you. Take courage. Be not afraid. Don't let the affliction destroy you and remove all hope from you. And so here we have this phrase, have you not known, have you not heard? It's a gentle, I think, hopefully gentle, reminder that they suffered from spiritual amnesia. They had heard these things, they had known these things, but they were now in the back of their minds, not the forefront of their minds. And we see that this similar thing takes place throughout this whole chapter. That's not the only time he says a similar thing. For instance, where was it? Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? And so not even the past, but in the present, he was calling them to hear, to listen. And so in this spiritual amnesia, they forgot that they were in covenant with the Lord their God. And that's why I think it's important, he says, that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the covenant who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, that's a significant thing. The one Who made this covenant with you on Mount Sinai that Moses reaffirmed with you in Deuteronomy? That God, that's the one with whom you have to do the God who brought you into covenant relationship with Himself. And this covenant means that it provides the boundaries and the dynamics of their relationship with God so that their relationship is not ruled by feelings. Whether or not you feel close to God today or feel distant from God today, we can often play this sort of trap with ourselves. That's what they were doing. Playing that trap. God doesn't feel close because my circumstances are not good. Therefore, God is gone from me, and that was not the truth. That's not what was happening. So the, the covenant provides the dynamics with this idea of covenant blessings and covenant curses that were meant to help them understand their relationship, so that they would walk faithfully with their God, and that they would learn when they're unfaithful to walk faithfully. That's all I have time for in terms of that this morning. Okay. They also forgot the Lord redeemed their forefathers from Egypt. They were not enjoying themselves on an Egyptian vacation when God showed up and said, hey, let's go to the promised land. They were enslaved. They were beaten, oppressed, exploited, and being exterminated. And so we have in Exodus 2, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Okay, so the, the whole reason they came out of the, of the, in the Exodus, they came out of slavery, was that he had redeemed them, he had remembered the covenant he made with Abraham and Jacob and Israel, And brought them out. He heard them. And so just as God heard the groanings of His people in Egypt, so He was going to hear the groanings of His people in Babylon, and He would deliver them from Babylon. And so God continues to hear the groanings of His people. When you call out to Him, cry out to Him in misery, He hears. They also forgot that He is the everlasting God. He was not like the kings that came and went because they died or were murdered. He's not like the gods of the nations who could be killed. He is the one who always has been and always will be. And so they, have, they need not fear that God has been overcome by something. Something that God has has perished and is no longer able to hear them and no longer able to respond to them. And some of this I'm reminded of when uh, Elijah was mocking the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. See, someone's smiling. She, She knows that all right. Oh, cry louder. Your God may have fallen asleep. Cry louder. Maybe he's in the bathroom, which is what that says. He's busy. He doesn't have time for you right now. But maybe if you keep crying, He will. Our God is the everlasting God who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so He is the same God that He was when He delivered His people out of Egypt. And so He will deliver you This God, who is the everlasting God, is also the one who predates creation. He is the creator of the ends of the earth, and implication, everything in between. The problem, in other words, is not a lack of power. It's not as though this is a problem that is too great for God and the reason why he hasn't delivered you from it is too difficult for him to pull this one off. And this is the refrain that goes through this whole chapter. Because it's not just, haven't you heard, don't you remember, but also the idea of how powerful he is. For instance, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're accounted as dust on the scales. They're nothing in the presence of God who is this God he's the one who measures the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand he's the one who marked off the heavens with a span who enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales can you weigh mountains and scales he can that's how powerful he is this problem is not too big for him not only that The people are like grasshoppers before him. Later on, indeed, who is he? He brings out the host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might. Because he is strong in power, not one of the stars is missing. They had forgotten his power, but God hadn't forgotten his power. And that's what matters. And so we see his great power revealed. Ephesians one, for instance, and in what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. One thing about power? Making a dead man live. And that's nothing. Because he took that now live man and raised him to the right hand of his throne and seated him with glory and honor, power. That is the power, Paul says, that is at work in God's people. That same power God, because he is of such power, does not faint, the text says. In other words, there is no intrinsic weakness in God that we can blame, that that there is nothing that is too great for him. I thought of myself. I didn't want to pick on anybody else. In my own, I know right now I seem so strong before you. (laughs) Remember those ads in the back of the comic books when you were a kid? The, the, the scrawny guy at the beach who always got his, the sand kicked in his face. Well, I was that guy. You know? And I tried to work out with weights. Tried to be, you know, so like, like at the end of the cartoon, where he's like, and able to push around the big guy. That never happened. <laughs> There's an intrinsic weakness to me. I'm not big and strong. Okay? There's an intrinsic weakness in my back, which means I'm still weak, not strong. There is no such weakness intrinsically with God. Not only does he not faint, he does not grow weary. In other words, there is no task or series of tasks that are so difficult, so uh, exhausting to him that he grows weary that they wear God out. I've been wrestling with a cold. That's why I have my water. Yesterday morning, it was Saturday. Every Saturday morning, who makes breakfast for the family? I do. And so I made the usual breakfast, although we expanded a little bit. You know, we, we had hash browns yesterday too, in addition to our traditional, uh, waffles and bacon. Gotta have bacon. It's Saturday, folks. Amen. Bacon. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I cooked breakfast and I went and collapsed on the couch after eating it. Because of this cold, I was so worn out from making breakfast. (laughs) God is never on the couch needing to catch a breath from the great and amazing things He does. Okay? He's not like us in this way. His power is wielded in particular to uphold his people by keeping his covenant promises. There is a promise coming that he gave in 70 years, 70 times seven, You will be taken out of exile, and you will be gathered back. There are all of these promises, and God was going to keep them. The time had just not arrived yet. Thirdly on that, it says, his understanding is unsearchable, or inscrutable, as some translations have it. In other words, uh, they are complaining and judging God's job performance, even though they can't understand necessarily what His job is. They don't understand His goals, His purposes, His means to ends, They cannot grasp them. We see this in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul declares. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So Paul's talking about the doctrine of election. And at the end of that section, he just goes, it's beyond me. What God does. I can't fathom it all. And that is why, in many ways, in Proverbs 3, we see trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, because your own understanding is insufficient to get it. And so, our afflictions are not an indictment of God's knowledge and wisdom. When we think they are, we begin to argue, such, so as Al Martin, a pastor in New Jersey, once said, with our teacup minds, our little teacup minds. A teacup doesn't hold much, does it? And compared to God, our minds are like teacups. They're tiny. They don't contain a lot. And so how are we who know so little to judge Him Who knows everything? And so uh, we see that God condescended to address Job's complaint. And when he did, Job humbled himself in the sight of God. We see here that God is condescending, so to speak, to address their complaints. And so in the midst of this discussion about the understanding of God, I'm reminded of the, I'm sure all of you have thought of this, Maybe Mike Pixley did. Maybe. The Gordon Clark, Cornelius Van Til controversy. Okay. Who's even heard of that? My wife has because she hears me talk about it <laughs> as I read about it. And part of the problem was, okay, Gordon Clark was a rationalist. And so he thought that, there, that our, our understanding and God's understanding were, this big word, equivocal. They're the same okay, Van Til taught that they're analogical, that I can know things truly, but I do not know them as God knows them. I know them like God knows them, but his knowledge of them far exceeds mine precisely because he understands the fact that 2 plus 2 equals 4, not just as an isolated little fact, but in relationship to everything else there is to know about the universe, And so the way in which I know 2 plus 2 is 4 is not the same way God knows 2 plus 2 is 4. Not just in terms of quantity of knowledge or comprehensiveness of that knowledge, but even how it's related to everything else. That's why I like Cornelius Van Til, because of passages like this. There's no way I can figure out Everything God is doing. because He's doing this you know, uh, in so many different dimensions, then I'm understanding it. So many different lives are engaged in something that I think just has to deal with me. And so when we complain, we forget who we are, we forget who God is, and rather than trust Him, we accuse Him. Thirdly, wow, I spent too much time on that, I think. My wife might agree. God grants strength through the Messiah. He reminds us that even the strongest and best fall exhausted, and these are not people who are wimps like me. The word that he uses for young men, it really has that idea of chosen men, called out men. And so in that time, it would be the athletes, what we would think of today as the, the Olympic athletes. okay, The Navy SEALs, Mr. CrossFit or Miss CrossFit these people who seem to be able to go on forever and ever, but they have a limit. And God has no limit. The good news is that even though even the strongest of us will be exhausted by our afflictions, he says, those who wait for the Lord, those who are clinging to the promises, that's what it means to wait. Okay, he's made a promise to me and I know He's going to keep it, because that's who He is. And even though I can't understand how He's going to keep it, and I don't understand when He's going to keep it, I just know He is going to keep it. Clinging to Him, waiting for Him. We see this earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 30, verse 15, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved." in quietness and in trust, shall be your strength. Because it's not our strength. We're trusting in Him, being quiet before Him, and being strengthened by Him. This does not mean that Christians... Aren't afflicted. It doesn't mean that Christians don't get exhausted, but it means that they still cling to hope and keep moving forward in the midst of their affliction. Think of instance, for instance, Simeon and Anna. Since it's Advent, okay. Remember who Simeon and Anna were. When Jesus, as an infant, on the eighth day, was presented at the temple, they met two people, Simeon and Anna. And why did they meet Simeon and Anna there? Because they were there every day waiting for the Messiah to show up. They had a promise. And they saw the fulfillment of it. Anna had been there years. Now, she'd go home at night, but you know what I mean. For years, Simeon and Anna had waited And I love Simeon's song. Now I can depart in peace. The travail of his soul was over. Not because he had been redeemed yet, but because the Redeemer had come and that was good enough. And he would be redeemed. Now we want a strong Messiah. But when I think of the true Messiah, the one who showed up, the one who really isn't wanted all the time, we have a Messiah who showed up in weakness. The strong God, the omnipotent one, showed up in weakness in order to die for our weakness. Right now, when I take my walks on Friday and sometimes Saturday, I listen to Sinclair Ferguson preach on Romans. And yesterday he was in Romans five and he was, and I love that passage because while we were weak, while we were helpless, Christ died for us. And that's the ultimate grounding of our hope. Is that while we're weak, while we're helpless, our weakness and helplessness is not a problem for God. Christ came and died for us to redeem us. And so it is in that light that we see that the Lord shall renew their strength. He exchanges our weariness for His strength. This is what exactly what Paul experienced and talks about through much of 2 Corinthians, not just the first chapter. I happen to be in 2 Corinthians right now. All through, this word comfort keeps popping up. I mean, it's it's centered in chapter 1 and then in chapter 12, but we see it. How bad was Paul suffering? He said, he despaired even unto life. He thought he was going to die. And the comfort came. He despaired of life, he says, so that he would rely on the God of all comfort and be strengthened so that he could strengthen others in their affliction so they could endure. Right there, chapter 1. In chapter 12, we see he boasts about his weakness because it is then that he becomes strong because God's strength is made perfect in his weakness. And so we never experience the perfect strength of God as long as we pretend that we're strong. It's only when we, we realize we're weak. That's what Paul learned. Paul also prayed. Ephesians 3, for instance, now to Him who was able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work in us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Paul knew this God of inestimable power who loved His people. This power is given to us in union with Jesus Christ. Paul prays again in Colossians 1, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so, why is He an unwanted Savior or a Messiah? Because we want Him to fix our circumstances. And what Paul keeps praying about here is him giving us endurance and strengthening us through our circumstances. Not taking away all of our afflictions, but enabling us to withstand those afflictions. The passage that is erroneously credited to the Scriptures God does not give anyone more than they can bear, not in the Scriptures. God will give you more than you can bear but he also gives you his power to bear up under them. Jesus is unwanted precisely because we don't want to go through the storm. We have this little plaque in our home. It is not in Scripture, but I think it's more true than that other one. Sometimes God calms the storm, and sometimes he calms his child. When you've lived in Florida, you understand this. When you have seen hurricanes ravage your neighborhood, you understand this. You know, uh, once it was boasted that Castro, by his thumb, diverted a hurricane. No, he didn't. Okay? Sometimes God does change the course of a storm. But sometimes He makes it sit. That was with the joy of, was it Francis? Just sat there. Hurricane just sat there. Is this hurricane ever going to end? Are we ever going to get out of this house? (laughs) Sometimes he brings the storm, makes the storm sit, but he doesn't make his people sit alone. He sits with them and reminds them. When we're complaining, all it means is that we're not content to ride out the storm with Jesus. We'd rather be out of the storm without Jesus. What's going on? Some of you are probably thinking, when will we ever be out of this sermon? (laughs) Right now. So, what are you longing for? Are you longing for the end of a loved one's illness? Are you longing for the end of your own illness? Are you longing for the end of gun violence and terrorism? Well, like some politicians and quite a few of our fathers in the faith, we are prone to doubt God's love, power, goodness, and wisdom. We see but a tiny portion of the picture. But we have a Messiah who comes to strengthen His people with consolation, the consolation that is found in His death for us when we were weak, and helpless. And so seek consolation rather than understanding. Seek consolation rather than the quick fix. Seek to know this unwanted Messiah more. Let's pray. Father, we've all been in that position where we just want it to end, whatever it is. And some right now are in that situation. They want it to end. They are tired. They're beaten down. They're weary. They want a big, long nap on the couch. And I ask that you would strengthen them with the consolation we have in Jesus Christ, with the consolation of a redeemer, a sanctifier. The consolation of one who has come and will come again for his people. The consolation of one who has repeatedly heard the cries of his people and has repeatedly come and redeemed, come and delivered. And so work by the power of the Spirit so that they don't give up hope, Father. So that they're able to endure until you decide that affliction is over. Help them to not try to figure it all out. But trust that you know what you're doing. And that what you're doing is directed by your love and your wisdom. Help them to trust in your goodness, even though life doesn't seem good at the moment. And Father, for those who aren't in that midst, prepare them for the time that they are in that kind of situation. Ready them with those gospel promises uh, that they would take them to heart now so that they're able to draw upon them in the midst of affliction so that they're not overwhelmed like Andy was. So that even though they're tired, they have hope and are able to keep moving forward with You. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.